Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to Revolution Recap here, coming after the Revolution's 2-2 draw with New York City FC. I'm Sean Donahue, joined today by Ryan Lanigan and Brian O'Connell, both formerly of New England Soccer today. Uh, a very interesting result and match uh, on Saturday afternoon as the Revolution got off to a one nothing lead through Diego Fagundes, uh, tied up in the second half through Ismael Tajori. Uh, Juan Agodelo then came off the bench to score in the 63rd minute to make it 2-1, but at the end of the day, New York City FC nodded it at 2-2 again through Ismael, Ismael Tajori in the 75th minute. Um, giving the Revolution a 2-2 draw against New York City FC, who uh, are top of the league, but we're also missing several key players, including David Villa. Uh, before we get started, I did want to mention now that you can find us on the Google Play Store. So we're, we'd already been on Apple iTunes for the Mac users, and now for the Android users, you can find us on, on Google Play. Uh, but jumping back into the game, I wanted to start off with some takeaways, and then we'll jump into some of the, the tweeted questions we have, um, and as well as we're going to talk about the MLS player survey that came out this week, and of course, the, the biggest MLS news uh, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, but let's start off with with Ryan Lanigan and your thoughts and takeaways from the Revolution's two two draw this weekend. Yeah, I think it's uh, important to look at obviously the missed chances that they had because uh, they could have easily put a couple goals in in the first half and, and probably put the game to bed early. But uh, at the same point, they blew two two leads. Um, you know, had a one goal uh, lead going into the second half, then they tied it up. Uh, they took a two one lead, and then just about ten minutes later, they gave up uh, the tying goal again. So. I'm looking at the defense here, and, and my main concern is the center-back pairing. Uh, we're three games in, and we've had three different pairings uh, for the Revolution so far uh, between Dielna, Delamea, and Andy Baba kind of being the main focus guys. Obviously, uh, Friedel had to make a decision in game two because of the red cards from game one, but we kind of had a chance to see uh, Dielna and Delamea get back to anchoring that defensive line this week, and uh we didn't see it. We saw Anibaba kind of stay in that spot. Delamay was in the 18, didn't see the field. Uh, so I guess my biggest you know, takeaway is, is where do you draw the line between consistency and complacency? We've seen uh, Frito really, really push uh, that he doesn't want you know one person to be complacent in their spots. He wants competition uh, among all positions. So so I get where he's pushing different people. Now Delamay has to earn his spot back in the lineup. Um but I think if you want consistency at one position, um, besides maybe goalkeeper, it's probably your center back uh, spot. And I think, and maybe this is just me, I think your two center backs are pretty clear. It's Delamea and Dielna are your guys that you're you're trying to build a foundation over. So all of a sudden you had the chance to go back and get that duo, uh, and they skipped over it. So for me, uh, not that the two played bad together, Dielna and, and Ibaba, but um, I thought they had a chance to kind of get back to what they want to build on, and, and they missed that this week. Yeah, and kind of to jump on that point, Ryan, you know, I, I guess when you look at, you know, you do have Diel the back and you have Delamea av- available, are you really saying that Anibaba is your better option in that pairing than Antonio Delamea? Like, to me, that's just kind of crazy. It just seems as though, you know, you've gone out and spent a lot of money on not only Dielna, but also on Delamea. And when you have the opportunity to start De La Maya, um, you know, are you really saying that Andy Baba was your better option against, you know, one of the best teams in the league, the best team in the league? I mean, to me, it just doesn't, I'm, I'm struggling to see the rationale for 
putting in a guy like Andy Baba over a guy you're paying a, a pretty decent amount of money for. And like you mentioned that the general sense being is that, you know, if you're going to get consistency from your center backs, well, you know, doesn't it make sense to put together your two best center backs? And to me, your, be- your two best center backs are, for better or worse, are De La Mea and, and uh, Dielma. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I almost, when you take a step back and look at it, almost feel like he's using this as, as an example. Uh, so much he's he's really really pushed. Uh, he doesn't want to have anyone complacent in one spot. Doesn't want anyone to feel too comfortable that they don't have pressure that their spots you know granted every uh, eleven, every starting eleven at each game. Uh, I think he even said in the middle of the week you know he was talking about getting those two back. How that will help the depth. And to me that was almost like hey th- this is what I'm talking about. Just because you're back doesn't mean I'm going to give you your spot in the end game. Maybe. Delamay and Delna are the two he wants, uh, but it almost felt like this was like kind of a message he was trying to send. Like, look, you know, here's your chance to prove that you have to work to get back into the lineup. Yeah, I think Ryan makes a great point. And and what I wanted to add to that is, you know, we looked at last year and towards the end of the season, Delamay was among the guys that were getting some stupid red cards um, that were really hurting the team. And we saw him get you know a red card where he got beaten and, and dragged down a guy in the first game of the season that really you know burned the Revolution. And we didn't really see much accountability. Certainly with you know Christian Namath as an example was a guy that got a, a you know dumb red card at the end of last season and you know w- went right back into to playing. We didn't really see um, much accountability for that last year. Uh, I almost wonder if, if Friedel is now taking the approach that uh, you know like Ryan was saying that. Uh, you got to earn your way back in the lineup. If he saw that red card as, as something pretty stupid, and that was you know an opportunity for him to uh, you know send a message in another way of saying you know we're not going to tolerate these red cards, and if you get a stupid red card, you, you might be out for more than just that game you're suspended for. Exactly, and we don't see every minute of training, and maybe over the last couple weeks uh, since those they both got their red cards, uh, maybe Dielna had a lot better training. Uh, maybe he had you know better showing in training, and then Delamay did. And that would, that's what earned him back his spot in the lineup uh, compared to just both of them going right back in. Yeah, and I guess I'll just also say that, you know, for me, you know, I think, I think guys make great points. And I just, I, I, guess, I guess you kind of have to give a little bit of a pass to Friedel since he just kind of took over. But I feel like these are kind of decisions you make during the preseason. Like if you're, if you're you know, kind of, you know, testing guys and, you know, keeping them, keeping them from becoming complacent, I mean, isn't, isn't that the opportunity to do that during the preseason where you say, Okay, you know you're going to start, you know, say Dielma and Andy Baba as your center backs, and that in the message is sent during the preseason. It's not sent <laughs> during the third week of the season, um, or you know, right off the bat. You're starting them off with, you know, you start off the season with maybe Andy Baba and and Dielna. So um, I don't know. I just it, to me, it's a very very curious situation in which, um, like Ryan, like like Ryan's original point, if you want consistency anywhere. In order to make this, uh, in order to make, in order to 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 be able to rely on your defense, you really, really need cohesion and consistency at center back. And it seems like we haven't seen that at all this year. And j- just back to my original point, I didn't think the duo played too bad together. Uh, but if you look at that second goal, it was just kind of a, a quick turnover by Somi on the left wing. Just kind of was trying to find um, between I think Caldwell and, and Fagundes. Quick turnover, and uh, if you, you kind of watch the replay. Um, I think it's Burgett was the guy that took the ball down. Uh, he was kind of just in, by himself. It was he was between the two center backs. Uh, didn't seem like in it. Like I said, it was a quick turnover, so they didn't really have time to react. But uh, it was a it wasn't a special ball or anything. It was kind of floated up, and he had way too much time to kind of take it down and play it. And then they were able to find the space between uh, I think Andy Baba and Farrell um, was where they, they split the two there. Uh, so it's just 
you, it, it is fine. You're only three games in, so yeah, maybe they're still trying some things out. But uh, I would think sooner than later, that's a position uh, they're gonna they should get some consistency in as soon as possible. Well, you, you talk about consistency, and I do want to get to everyone else's takeaways. But before I do, uh, stick on the defense for a minute. Uh, Gabriel Somi was back in the lineup. Uh, after he had been out with a concussion, uh, his play with with Dielma didn't seem to be, especially on that first goal. It seemed like they weren't necessarily on the same page as far as you know who was marking who. Um, and you know, again, the lack of consistency is a problem there. And some of that was was forced by the red card and the, the concussion, obviously. Um, but are, are we still concerned with potentially you know Somi's playback there, or is that something that we think is is going to to come with time? And uh, you know, those two will figure it out. I think I, I know exactly what play you're talking about, Sean, and that's the exact same thought that I was kind of thinking of is, uh, you know, the lack of, you know, the lack of understanding cohesion between uh, Diana and Somi. And, um, you know, for me personally, I think it's something that will will develop with time. I'm not overly concerned because um, it is still so early, you know, and it's also tough. You know, the only other, you know, kind of, uh, you know, legitimate competition that we've seen Somi, uh, Somi play in was the Philadelphia game. And that was just kind of like you kind of have to throw that throw that out a little bit because it was, you know, 11 v 10. So um, I think, you know, as far as the understanding goes between Dielna and like the rest of the back line, um, I think that'll come with time because there are so many, uh, there are so many new pieces. Like Ryan mentioned, you know, it's still early, you know, nobody's, uh, nobody's ready to kind of say that, you know, the defense is, is, isn't, um, you know, is not a finished product. It is an unfinished product because there is so much, there's so much turnover there, but, um, but I think it's still early to see. I think, that specific goal was kind of like, uh, to me, seemed like a prime example of them just not, still not, not getting to the point where they need to be, which I think will happen uh, eventually as the season goes on. Just uh, that, that first goal, that opening goal, I believe is the one you guys are talking about for yep. New York City. Uh, I, I think the, the midfield kind of should take a little bit of a blame there. Watch it again in replay. Uh, when they do lose it there, well, they actually did lose it. Uh, Panillo kind of got beat a little bit on a ball over the top, uh, and then they switched the fields real fast. If you pause it, there was about five uh, Revolution players within like a 20-yard radius uh, compared to like three NYC guys, and they just switched the field so fast um, that you need someone tracking back from the midfield. And uh, like you guys have said, it, it's they're all relatively new pieces. It, yeah, Diano's from you know from over from last year, but so many new. Zahibo's new in the midfield. I thought he you know kind of got lost tracking. Uh, I thought he was ball watching a little bit. Uh, so it was a, a counterattack goal. Um, that I think the midfield kind of should have halted before it got uh, even to the defense. But again, it's just it's fitting the pieces in. Um, and my whole thing, just back from the beginning, is finding that consistency that you want in that back line. Yeah, you, you mentioned that goal, and there is no shortage of blame to go around. I think Pania and Zahibo both. Um, at, at the start of that play, certainly could have done a lot more. Um, and then when it got to the defense, you know, Somi and, and Dielna gave gave way too much space because they both you know went to the same man at first. Um, but but speaking of guys that are and aren't on the same page, two guys that do seem on the same page offensively, and this is my takeaway was you know Diego Fagundes and Christian Pania. And I think we heard Brad Friedel talk about it a lot in preseason how the two of them can work together. And I think that's part of the reason why Fagundes is playing in the middle because they you know they like his ability to play off of Pania. Uh, we saw that a lot. Certainly, it helped lead to the first goal um, when Pania set up when you know Pania was involved, and then Pania helped on the second goal as well, setting up Aguadelo. But uh, Fagundes uh, played really well off of him, and I think the two of them have a, a great understanding. And we saw so much of the offensive play come down that left side 
um, or even the right side when Panilla was moved over, uh, just because of how effective he was. Uh, I think there were some questions defensively from his play, and we can certainly talk about that. And I don't think that's you know necessarily what his 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 skill set is and what he was brought here to do. But the two of them have combined so well and, and seem to have that understanding and chemistry that you don't uh, often see between two players, and that's developed so quickly since you know Panilla just joined this offseason. Um, and on the flip side, you have a guy like Kellen Rowe, who's you know arguably the most talented guy out there, and has you know played for the U.S. national team, a fantastic player, uh, but he really didn't seem on the same same page as the rest of the midfield in this game and I'm not sure why that was um, at halftime I believe he was sub 50% passing and then he finished the game at you know 55.6% passing uh, Brandon by came in for him in the in the 60th minute um, and just you don't expect to see a guy with the skills of Kellen Rowe to have as bad of a game as I thought he had in, in this one um, and as good in Panini and Fagundes were um, it's, it's surprising to me that Kellen Rowe hasn't been able to get on the same page with, with, with those two guys and, and part of that leads to what we've talked about before and that we you know most of us I think agree that Rowe is better suited for the, the center of the field but you know Frito seems to see Fagundes there um, but you know, for for a guy that has been a part of the U.S. national team conversation, he just hasn't seemed to fit in with this team so far this year. And I wonder if part of that is that he missed you know the beginning of preseason, and and since then hasn't had uh, you know missed some of the preseason as well. I believe with an injury, if I remember correctly, um, and just hasn't had the time to build it. But but, but so far, he just really hasn't fit in uh, with Fagundes and Panilla the way some of these other guys uh, have in getting this attack going. I'll kind of like uh, add to that, Sean. Is that you know for me, I, I kind of agree in that. Um, it looked like the kind of game where Rowe was really kind of struggling to find what his find his role in the offense. I think he was taking a lot. I think he was he was quick to pull the trigger on a lot of on a lot of chances that he had, um, and and obviously <laughs> there were a couple of them that that weren't so great. And I think that was maybe a po- product of him kind of trying trying to press a little bit. And I mean <clears throat> that's just kind of what my initial observation was was the fact that he does seem kind of like he seems unsure of what his role is. When a lot of the um, when a lot of the uh, you know attacking uh, attacking uh, action taking place on the left, he's kind of out on the right, and um, you know when the ball comes to him, it seems like he's trying to make an impact almost every time. At least that's what I observed from yesterday's game. He just kind of seems like a guy who isn't quite sure of his role um, with with the way the offense is currently constructed. Yeah, and my question here is: you see a guy like Callum Rowe, who I think is you know well suited for a team that's trying to play possession ball, especially because you know makes smart passes. And in, in a game like this, where you know New York City FC, I think had something like seventy five percent possession at halftime, and you know like eighty percent of the passes were, were them, not the Revs. Uh, Brian, do you think this is just a game that that didn't suit Rowe's skill set? I mean, it, it's possible. Um, I think it, you know it's tough because I feel like it was the kind of game in which. Um, you know, that maybe he kind of, like, you know, he doesn't seem like a, the kind of guy that, like, you know, really, really presses that much. And I know that uh, Patrick Vieira after the game said that, you know, they were going to stick to, you know, playing out of the back the entire time. And, um, you know, you saw the energy level. For me, personally, I mean, the guys I saw with the most energy levels were Fagundes and and uh, and uh, Scotty Caldwell. So it seemed like, you know, well, you know, don't you want, don't you want, you know, Kellen Rowe also kind of doing the same? And he didn't seem to be really on the same page as far as, like, you know, what that game plan was. And, uh, and I think we saw him struggle as struggle as a result. Going back to Sean's original point about uh, missing the beginning and kind of finding a role in the team. Uh, just a quick note: he's not the only one that missed time at the beginning of the, of the year um, for for the Revolution, and he's not the only one that's kind of still finding the role. Look at Cody Cropper. Uh, I know we'll talk about him a little bit, um, but he's gone from starter to third string. I know he had a, a quite he had a knock for a little bit, but still missed uh, the beginning, and now. He's the odd man out. 
Uh, so you wonder if, you know, it's just a matter of time before Kellen kind of fits into the system. Sean, I thought you made a great point about him playing more centrally. I think that's where he belongs. Um, I know they're fitting Fagundes into that spot right now. Uh, and again, back to your original point, I thought Fagundes and Pania were terrific together. Uh, and I think that's why Fagundes was in the middle, because you see Pania switching sides. So no matter where he is, he has Fagundes to work with him. Yeah, no, the two of them had a you know way of interchanging, and sometimes you'd see Fagundes move out wide. And it just it, it was a, a level of play that you don't often see uh, this early of the season, and certainly from a guy, uh, certainly from a guy like like Pania, who's only been here a few months to to fit with those two. And again, I do think there's more that Pania needs to work on um, defensively. There were those lapses there, and, and that's something that you know if you're going to play a high press style like Frito wants to play, he needs to get better at. Uh, but the early signs are are really positive and impressive there. Um, and, and I do want to jump to, to Brian's takeaway now, if, if Brian, if you want to jump in with, yeah, with your thoughts. I mean, speak, yeah, speaking of the uh, high press, and that's something that really, I, that was kind of my biggest takeaway. And it's something that uh, one of our listeners, Russ Goldman, also mentioned. And it's, I kind of want to go, go in that direction on it is that, um, you know, if you're playing that kind of high press, you know, it's, it's hard to do that. It's, it's not something, it's one thing to say, okay, this is what we're going to do. Um, but to do it against especially a team as, as technically sound and as you know disciplined as uh, New York City FC, you really have to like you know be be mindful of when you're going to pick your spots because it seemed like you know the Revs really used a lot of their energy in the first half and it really did pay dividends in the sense that they did get that early goal. Um, like Ryan mentioned, they could have had two or three goals going into the half. Um, obviously, we saw the goal that I mean we saw the shot that uh, hit off the hit off the post from Pania. Um, so it could have really been a different game had they capitalized on those chances. That said, if you're not going to be able to capitalize on all, on all those chances, you really have to be mindful that you're not expending all your energy and get, becoming completely gassed by the 60th, 70th minute. And I think that's exactly what happened to the Revs yesterday is that, you know, a teams like, you know, they can get the early jump on teams like uh, New York City FC, as we saw yesterday. But, you know, the thing is, you know, those teams are going, the good teams like New York City FC are going to make adjustments at halftime. And they know that, you know, with a smart coach like Patrick Vieira, they know that the Revs can't play that game 90 minutes, especially this early in the season. And, you know, the, my question to uh, to Friedel was the fact, well, how long is it going to take for this team to get to that point where they're able to uh, they're able to kind of not run out of gas, you know, at the 70th minute? And I think he kind of like evaded the question a little bit by saying that, you know, the team is fit. Um, but I think the overall sense is that, you know, they, you know, if you're going to employ high press, you really have to, um, not only have the sense of, you know, when to press and when not to press, but you also have to be smart in the sense that your defense also has to pick up a lot of the pace, um, in the second half, your defense has to be sound. And I know that we kind of like, you know, talked a lot about it already in the podcast and that, um, you know, there are question marks on defense and that the defense obviously isn't where it needs to be yet, but, the defense is going to have to need to be where where at need to be at a higher level in order for the high press to work because, you know, obviously the focus is on the guys up front the, in your midfield and making sure that, you know, they're forcing tur- turnovers. But you know, when a team like New York City counters as they did um, on the second goal, I mean, you have to be ready. The defense has to be ready, and the defense clearly wasn't ready. And um, there just has to be more um, more awareness and more vision and more. Um, you know, just just more discipline overall when it comes to uh, when it comes to defending in the second half uh, after using the high press. You know, after using a lot of your energy in the first half. So that was my biggest takeaway. And uh, you know, it was encouraging to see the Revs. You know, kind of get two goals against uh, New York City FC, but at the same time, um, 
you know, they left themselves open. And you can't leave yourselves open against a team as uh, as strong and as smart as uh, as as strong as smart as New York City FC. Yeah, I'll work uh, backwards uh, with some of your points there, Brian. Starting off with uh, the press in the defensive line being responsible for so much, especially against the counter. I think the most important part too is when you're pressing that high, necessarily isn't to win every possession uh, up in the the attacking third or the middle third, uh, but to make uh, things difficult out of the back. When that the first goal when they countered uh, NYCFC, uh, it was just it was kind of easy. Uh, their their left flank, their left back, kind of chipped over the top. It was a quick win between three revs uh, midfielders. He turned, he played it wide, and there was a quick switch, and it was on. It was just too easy. So if you're pressing like that, you've got to be able to make it difficult where the ball coming out of the back is just over the top or played into space and your defense has a little more time to deal with it. And then and working back to the just the beginning of the high press and the chances they created, I think you take a step back and look at it, and I think sometimes we're cynical with it. I think the majority of the time the Revs are pro- in, in any given team, given those chances, are probably going to score. Uh, they hit the woodwork with Pania on the on the nice ball um, to the right on the, on the left flank. Took it with his right foot curved to the far post, just missed. Um, Teal Bunmary made a terrific run uh, that then Pania linked up with Fagundes, who kind of I, it was close to a sitter, put it over the bar. He was hit pretty hard on it, but I think he should have had it. Uh, there were chances. Zahibo in the second half put one straight through the box. Uh, Agadello was kind of at the far post, didn't make the run. Uh, in general, when you're pressing that high and creating those chances, I think you're going to score more goals if you create those chances that the Revs did. They were a bit unlucky to get just the one. And I think when you can press, score, take a 2-0 lead, 3-0 lead, whatever it may be, then you can kind of change in the second half to that more possession base. You let Kellen Rowe take over, you let Scotty Caldwell take over, where you just kind of dish in the ball, move inside to side, and it's more of possession-based. Because if you're pressing in the 65th, 70th minute, and you're tied at that point, uh, that's a lot of energy um, to, to do that whole game uh, just to be tied or only go up by one at that point. Yeah, those are some great points. And that, and uh, I do want to jump into our listener questions now. Ryan, would you want to get us started on, on some of those? And there are a couple of common themes through, through what we were sent after the game. Yeah, of course. If you guys are uh, interested in asking us some questions, of course, on Twitter, at Revolution Recap, uh, we'll be tweeting out when we're looking for questions. So send us uh, some questions. We'll... Whoever's on the podcast each week will definitely be answering those. Um, well, let's look at Lee Wynn's situation. We had a couple questions about him. First things first from Corey. Uh, why isn't Wynn in the lineup or, you know, at worst, the 18? Uh, Sean and Brian, I'll let you guys kind of go back and forth on on the Wynn situation and where we stand. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in on this one. Lee Wynn, I, I think you can still make the case as the most talented guy on this roster. Um, but it seems to me like the team is so... You know, has gotten in so deep that they really, really want to make a statement here that you know you you can't do this. They've it's been multiple times where the team has offered that offered Lee Win new contracts when they didn't have to, when he was in situations where he had multiple years left, and they've they've upped his contract, and we haven't really seen them do that with any other player. Um, and and it's gotten to the point now where they just seem to want to make a statement that you know if you're going to hold out on on this team, we're not going to let you hold us hostage and, and force force you into a trade. Um, and and that will lead to I think one of the other questions. But before I get to that, it just seems like they're they're in a position where they're they're just so stubborn here. Um, and I you know I don't know if Lee Wen still isn't fit enough. Maybe that's part of the the, the the case. I'd be questioning how you know obviously he missed a couple of weeks, but at this point in the season, you'd think his fitness levels would be good enough to you know at least make the eighteen and, and come in as a sub. Uh, so to me, it it has to just be a situation where they're just being stubborn and, and wanting to make that that statement. 
Yeah, and I'll I'll definitely agree to I you know I agree with all what what you just said, Sean, because it does very much seem like you know it's just it's it's you know for lack of a better term it's it's organizational ego. They don't want to you know they don't want to you know concede the point that they really have the they have a player that you know they're they're just not going to you know uh, you know cave into those demands the demands he's making for a new contract. So. To me, it just seems like you know the best thing to do is for obviously both parties to part ways. Um, it probably should have been done weeks ago, probably um, because here we are, you know, two, two, three, uh, three weeks, four weeks into the season. In that, you know, we have, uh, you know, you have a player like you said, arguably one of the best players in your team, hasn't even appeared on the 18, and you know, and it, you're really kind of like at a holding pattern as to whether or not you know you're you're going to play him or not. And it seems that. They really don't have any intention of playing him. It seems like, you know, the midfield is pretty much solidified, especially with the addition of, of, uh, of Casado. It seems like there's really no no role for for win on this team, you know, possibly in in Friedel's mind. So it just seems like the best thing to do is uh, is to part ways. You know, get what you can. Um, maybe the Revs are waiting for, you know, the perfect offer. That perfect offer isn't isn't going to come. Uh, they're going to have to take, you know, pennies on the dollar for. For you know, for when because there's no team that's really going to make you know a great trade for him because they know that the Revs are in the Revs are in an awkward position. So um, you know, we saw him training with the playing a small sided game with the uh, with the reserves and some of the guys who some of the subs from yesterday's game afterward. Um, and you just wonder, you know, if he's not even on the 18, uh, you know, you're basically not only sending a message that uh, you know the message being sent to me is that you know you're not going to you're not going to dictate terms around here. But that you know you're not we're not even going to consider you for the 18 for for game day when it seems like he's he seems to be I would I would think uh, you know to the point where he's fit enough to contribute. I'll just kind of end it on this. Uh, it's an interesting situation. One, it's not the first time we've seen Win kind of upset here in New England. Two, you're looking at a new coach with a whole um, new regime, and, and he's trying to set a tone. I know Win requested this trade before the hiring. I think when Heaps was actually still. Uh, at, at, in, uh, as the head coach, I think that's when he requested it. Um, but you've got a new coach who's trying to set a tone. We've seen it with the goalies, where the starters become now third string. We've seen it with um, the center backs. They're not guaranteed their spot. I think he's trying to send a message. Uh, and I'm not sure the Revolution are wrong in this situation. Um, so that's kind of how I take it. Brian, you kind of mentioned we'll just do this quick follow-up here uh, from the Cooligans uh, on Twitter. They asked, you know, why won't they trade win already? So if we're in this situation, why won't they move on? Brian, you kind of mentioned maybe there's no deal and there's no deal worth it at this point. Uh, Sean, what do you think? Yeah, no, I think Brian makes a great point. I think they're looking for the perfect deal. Um, and I think, for, you know, for two reasons. I think they realize that Lee Wynn is a valuable player and, and he could do a lot to help this team. Um, and they're not just willing to let him go for nothing. So they're looking for the perfect deal. And I think the longer that he sits uh, outside the 18 and doesn't play, uh, the, the less likely they are to find that perfect deal. His value is not going up by not playing him. Um, so I, I, I don't know when, when it breaks to the point where, you know, they realize that they're not getting that deal that they want. Uh, and, and when they realize that they actually just, you know, have to move him for something. But, um, to me, I think they're in no rush to trade him because of the situation that, you know, that, that they're in where they're trying to, trying to make that point. Um, and the perfect deal isn't going to come. So they're going to need to, you know, find something they can settle on that's, that's less than ideal, uh, and realize that holding, 
you know, half a million dollars in, in dead weight on your on your out of your 18 from your from your salary cap uh, is not something that's tenable in this league with such a strict ca- salary cap. And, and especially with, you know, the way the revs spend, which is you know certainly not to not to overspend and, and keep a tight budget. So uh, I think they, it's like Brian said, they're looking for that perfect trade and it's just not going to come. I, uh, I'm going to take a little bit different approach. I don't think they're wrong for holding on to them right now. I think you guys are right. The deals are probably are not out there right now. Uh, but let's face facts, injuries happen in this league. Someone at some point is going to needly win on their team. And they're going to be someone maybe in a playoff position, maybe someone right in the cusp, and maybe they're going to be buyers. And the Revolution will be able to sell then. Uh, look, he's training. He's fit. Uh, I agree that he probably needs some game time. Um, whether you get them that with the reserves, you get him in the 18 here or there, uh, you get him some, sometimes a sub. I don't think he needs to be a starter because I think you need to kind of follow your – the whole idea that, you know, you've set a precedent, he, you know, came into training late, all that stuff. Um, but I think some point someone in this league is going to need him and, and there'll be buyers and they'll be able to get a decent deal from him. No need to rush and sell him for nothing now. Yeah, I think I think you're right, Ryan. But the one point I'd add on to that is you know, the deeper you get into the season, the more you see teams like and we'll talk about it later with what the galaxy did with was laton using their you know their targeted allocation money and their general allocation money um and again lee wins a guy that i, I believe is still making you know half a million dollars um uh, and there's there's certainly plenty of teams out there that won't have that salary cap space even at this point of the season um there'll be teams like the revs of course that you know that keep opportunities open so they can sign somebody mid-season but i think there are a lot of teams out there that you know come you know beginning of april almost aren't going to have the salary cap room to to sign a guy that's you know going to be taking up five hundred thousand dollars of salary cap space i'm just going to make one one quick point um ryan like you mentioned like you know there is a possibility you could possibly showcase him um you know in trade uh you know get him uh get get him you know fit and if he's not already fit in training you know uh training with the reserves you know maybe have him come off the bench but what kind of lead win are you going to get? I mean, what kind of what what is his motivation level going to be at that point? Because he seems very much like a guy that really has no incentive to really give it his all at this point, uh, at least for this team. I mean, maybe personally, like yeah, he thinks about personal pride. He wants to look good, um, but I really don't see him being the kind of player that's uh, that's really going to you know do what he can to help to help a team win. I know it's kind of like a uh, uh, you know kind of like a. a you know, something that, you know, I guess all, all players strive for, but he doesn't seem like the kind of player that you're going to get the most out of, even in a reserve role. Even if you start him, I just seem, I, I feel like you're going to get a very um, unmotivated Lee win uh, if he ever does suit up in, in a Revs uniform again. Well, I would hope for, you know, just from a personal standpoint, that he'd he'd put that aside when he's on the field. And, can, you know, he's obviously friendly with a lot of these guys. He wouldn't, I would hope he'd put some effort out there. And at the same time, when he, if he does get some time on the field in a Revolution uniform again, uh, it's his chance to showcase um, to other teams. Like, look, I still have it. You spend money on me. Take a chance. Take the half-million-dollar risk on me. Um, and I think that would be an opportunity for him to show off. You know, he's obviously still fit. And I think I think all of us agree that he's uh, he'd be a top talent on this team. Uh, it's just things aren't working contractually or whatever it is so uh we'll, we'll move on now to uh, another twitter question we had two people reach out about uh teal bunbury top popular uh, topic this week at any revs uk and at uh, uh bobby reverden sorry if i pronounced your name wrong uh, both reached out uh, and they want to know you know what teal bunbury want you know why is he still in the starting 11 and then at the same time and bobby wants to know uh, why is he up front instead of on the wing or off the bench? Um, he said he seems like he, an energy guy instead of a finisher. I think uh, we well after uh, Rose' performance this past week, I think we may <laughs> maybe we will see uh, Bunbury on the on the wing. 
uh, in Agadella up top in the, in the game at Houston. But um, you know, overall, I think at that point, um, you know, I think it's I think it's a sense that I don't I, I think that Friedel isn't really confident of what he's going to get from Agadello, You know, as as a starter, um, you know, Agadello is the kind of a guy who has his moments for sure, but he seems to. He seems to be one of your one of your automatic first subs. He's going to be a guy that you need to take off in the 50th, I mean the 58th or 60th, 62nd minute. And I think uh, Frito, with the way with the high press, the way that he's trying to play the high press, you know, he looks at all things considered as far as you know energy levels and says, okay, well, Bunbury is the better is the better option, and I can always bring in one off the bench. And you know, you're going to get a very uh, a very strong performance from one off the bench more often than not. I think we've seen it more, uh, we've seen it time at time after time again. Um, you know, Agadell coming off the bench and really making a, an impact, and I think that's what I think that's what Friedel also sees. Um, so I think that's the reason why you're seeing Bunbury up top, and um, and I do think that there is that you know the way that you, the midfield is orchestrated is probably exactly the way that Friedel wants it. Um, obviously, not everyone had a great game yesterday. We like we said, you know, we mentioned Rowe, but you know, if accountability is a big thing, who knows? Maybe we do see uh, maybe we do see uh, Bunbury back on the wing. Uh, at Houston and Agadell back in the back in the lineup as as your number nine. No, I think you made a great point, and my to, to me, it's more about Juan Aguadello, like you were saying, than it is about Teal Bunbury. Uh, Aguadello has been given lots of opportunities now, both both with Heaps um, and with Friedel now to to take over that starting spot as a, as the lone center striker. Um, certainly with Heaps, there were guys like Charlie Davies and Kai Kamara that could step in when when he you know didn't hold down that spot. And now you know there really isn't. There's Teal Bunbury, there's you know Femi, and there's Brian Wright. And I don't think you know, Brian Wright or Femi are going to be the guys that that can step up into that role. So leaves you with Teal Bunbury. Um, to me, it's it's a big disappointment that at this stage in Juan Aguadelo's career, he's not able to be that consistent striker that holds down that starting spot where there's any question of whether or not he should be starting over Teal Bunbury. Um, and I think a lot of Revs fans, uh, or a lot of people that observe the Revs, don't necessarily realize um, that Teal Bunbury did play as that lone striker in a 4-3-3 um, when he was playing at, at Sporting Kansas City and did really well there. So to see him... Uh, up top there, I think there's you know a lot of thought from Friel that maybe he can re- relish that role that he had with Sporting Kansas City that um, you know hasn't really played out here. And I don't think he's been particularly good on the wings when the Rebs have played him there. Um, and we've talked about this in, in past episodes, but you know Bunbury to me is a is a very speedy guy that can be dangerous off the bench. And I think long term you need to find a way to get Juan Aguadello uh, up up top starting, and then have Teal Bunbury. You know, either coming off the bench or if you need him on the wings. And when Christian Namath comes back, and, and Namath scored a fantastic goal for Hungary during this international break, uh, we heard rumors that they were looking to trade him. But maybe he gets more playing time, you know, on that wing. Um, you know, if Rowe continues to to not gel with with these new front three. I I agree. I think when it comes to we're looking at Bunbury and Agudelo, uh, I think it has as much to do with each other. Uh, the situation. I think Bunbury fit the game plan perfectly. He is someone that has, can chase that ball around, pressure, pressure, pressure. Juan Agudelo is a guy that is much better with his back-to-goal ball at his feet uh, or attacking the ball in the air kind of guy. He's, he's just not going to waste energy chasing down guys left and right to force turnovers. It's just kind of not his style. So you, you put him out there, the game plan kind of shifts. I, I think Juan, first of all, too, going back to Teal Bunbury, I thought he played fine against NYCFC. Uh, I didn't think he was great. He wasn't a true uh, dangerous striker, but I thought he fit the game plan. Uh, I thought his run in the first half uh, that allowed Panea to find Fagundes was key. 
to that uh, that chance. I thought his movement off the ball was actually really good. Um, he he scuffed a chance, I think, in the second half on top of the 18 and with a good chance. Uh, but I think almost everyone on the team, I think, messed up a chance yesterday. So uh, to me, I think Bunbury fit fine. Um, you'd like to see one work his way back in and maybe against a team that doesn't play uh, on the ground out of the back. Maybe that's more of the game where you fit Juan into the game plan uh, because he is dangerous. Look what he just did. Uh, he comes on, he gets, he obviously was agitating the defense there. Uh, he was fouled pretty quickly and then uh, he could finish in the air on a great cross from Pania. So uh, I, one, I thought Bunbury was good Two, I think Juan will work his way into the lineup. Uh, and three, when you mentioned Namath, I think that fits into uh, Frito's plan of, of having the depth and the, no complacency among uh, among the teammates. Yeah, the, the one thing I will add on Bunbury is he did finish this game with just 52% passing, which was worst on the team. Um, and, and that's something that, uh, you know, passing is not necessarily a strong suit. And the Revs in general in this game didn't pass particularly well. Uh, I think that was you know, part of the reason why New York City FC had so much possession compared to them. Um, but it, it, it's it's tough because... You know, neither of these two guys have done enough in my mind to, to hold down that starting spot. But I think you want to give one of them, you know, a, a run out there to build some confidence and, and, and finally uh, find the back of the net. And maybe Juan Aguadelo scoring that goal as a sub will help there. Um, but right now, there's neither of these two strikers look like guys that are capable of going out there and scoring 10-plus double-digit goals for this team this year. And just to, to switch up the topics, I did want to jump over to the MLS player survey that came out on ESPN this week. If you haven't had a chance to check it out, it's, a, it's an interesting read. Um, several of these things, I think, implicate the revs, some of them directly and some of them indirectly. I'm going to start off with one of the more indirect ones, which is about the artificial stadium surfaces, uh, in which players were asked if a stadium had an artificial surface, would it impact your decision to join the team? And 63% said yes. Um, some of the players added comments, and two of the comments that were listed here is no, as long as they train mostly on grass, which I believe is generally the case for the revolution, um, that they train mostly on grass uh, outside the stadium. Um, and then another one is hard yes, I don't like turf plain and simple the times i played on it it takes a day or two extra to recover um it doesn't surprise me that some players are you know against playing on turf i think we've seen guys like Thierry Henry, uh, other big name designated players that you know when they when they come play new england didn't play because they were you know afraid of injuring of injuries being on turf but to see 63 percent uh is quite a high number and we should point out it's not just the revolution that are playing on turf teams like seattle i believe portland uh, Montreal, uh, Vancouver is. I should get, pull the list up. I know Seattle for, certainly off the top of my head is. Um, but to see 63% is a bit of a troubling sign if you're the revolution looking to attract players. Uh, Ryan, did you have any any thoughts on this survey question? Well, yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned Seattle plays on turf, and they don't have any problem drawing top players, it seems. Uh, so I, I, I think it factors in to people's decision, but I don't know how many big names have certainly just said no to the revolution because of turf. I think that one note that player said, as long as they train mostly on grass, because that's your week, that's where you're really putting in a lot of the work. You're playing just 90 minutes on turf. It's not going to kill you too much. Yeah, maybe it takes an extra day to recover. Um, I'd like to see a breakdown of that. Uh, they don't have it, of course. I'd like to see a breakdown of the uh, of the level of players, designated players, um, basically by pay, of who says that. Yeah. I want to know how many of them are DPs are saying no. Uh, or how many DPs are saying yes for that instance? I mean, is it really just the the top top guys that are saying no? Obviously, sixty three percent said yes, but I want to know how many of the top level players are uh, are interested in that surface question. Yeah, that's a great point, Ryan, and that, it's something that actually you know I'd be curious to know because of the fact that you know you want to see you know where where's that coming that, that comment coming from? I mean, it, obviously it's 
it's one of many many comments that was that was made in that survey and it's not representative of basically the entire league it's just one um and obviously it does lend it lend itself some insight as to you know uh you know a general thought that is out there but uh you know i want to know you know did that comment come from you know a guy who's making you know ninety thousand dollars or is that a guy who's uh who's on a dp contract uh or you know playing for you know say playing for like seattle or what have you or not seattle obviously if he's going to say that <laughs> But, um, but, you know, where, where is that comment coming from? Because, like you said, like, you know, it doesn't seem like Seattle really has a lot of problem uh, attracting top talent to their team. And they play all their games on an artificial surface. So, um, you know, I think it's not just uh, – I think it's it's obviously an indictment on the Rebs because they obviously play an artificial turf. Um, but I don't think it's just the artificial turf when it comes to the Rebs that, that is really kind of like, you know – stopping players from signing with them. I think it's not just the artificial surface. There's just a lot more to it. And I think we all know what some of those uh, issues are. And I think that um, certainly the turf doesn't help. But, you know, like like you mentioned, Ryan, it you know, Seattle sim- seemingly has no problem attracting those kinds of players to their team. And they play an artific- they've play they been playing an artificial surface since day one. Spe- speaking of other <laughs> other things that impact players' decision, one of the uh, funny ones here, which is more again just the more just the statement that was made by one individual player, so we don't know who this is or or what it's reflective of, and more than anything else, I'd like to know who was saying this. But but players were asked which coach would they least want to play for, um, and the answer one person gave was whoever is coaching New England doesn't matter which coach it is. So uh, that was pretty telling from whoever that was. But you know more than anything else, I'm curious. Uh, which player <laughs> had that opinion? Because uh, as we talked about, there are reasons why New England maybe is not the most desirable place to play. <laughs> that was kind of weird, I thought, right? I mean, I mean, I would think some coach would attract someone to even New England. I mean, <laughs> I don't think it's – I mean, we live here. I don't think it's that bad of a place to be. Uh, I, I mean, that's – I think that's – to me, that sounds like someone that played here already. Yes. And, and went went away. That's, that's to me, because if you're – you haven't been here before, that's kind of a weird thing to say. Uh, unless you just have a bad relationship with maybe uh, the GM or something like that, the staff, I, I don't see it. To me, that sounds like someone that played here, didn't like it, and wants nothing to do with this organization again. Yeah, which which wouldn't be the first time we've heard something like that as far as a sentiment goes from uh, a negative sentiment from a player who used to play here. Um, or even, yeah, it, you know, we can all think about Jeff Lorenowitz that, you know, his, his comments after he was traded. Um, we can also think about, you know, uh, you know Jose Gonzalez, a guy who was un- also unhappy here in the way that his uh, his uh, his loan his option to buy uh, situation kind of played out initially. Um, so yeah, it sounds like a very much a player who was here. He didn't like it here, and you know is speaking from firsthand experience with maybe his displeasure of, uh, of w- with the organization after he left um, while he was here. So um, you know it's kind of interesting because you know I was looking at that survey and it seemed like you know. It, you know the the answer to that same question uh, was seemed to be I think one of them was uh, was Ben Olson and uh, you know the remark was something along the lines of uh, you know he really isn't about the X and o, uh, the X's and O's or the tactics he's more just about running hard and conditioning and uh, I think if that's obviously again it's just one comment of many uh, just one 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 player's opinion of you know many players in this league um, but I also think it does kind of speak to the fact that you know. Let's look at the last two coaches the Rebs have hired. It's been Jay Heaps and it's been uh, Brad Friedel. And those are two guys who really came in here with no coaching experience, no head coaching experience. Um, and if you have players who are saying that, who are saying, you know, I don't want to go to a team where the coach is just talking about, you know, 
uh, energy and conditioning and, and desire and, you know, giving it your all, you know, that's troubling. You kind of do want a player who you do, you kind of do want a coach who knows the ins and outs of the game, knows the ins and outs of tactics and how to, how to, you know, set up formations or what have you and has success with that. Um, you know, maybe that's maybe that's something that the Revs need to consider. I mean, obviously they're not going to they're not going to fire Brad Friedel, you know, tomorrow or anything like that. But it's something worth noting when you're talking about a when you're talking about attack, attracting talent to a team. Um, if you're trying to attra- attract top talent, that you know maybe you do want a coach. Maybe you do want a coach who knows the ins and outs of the game rather than making these hires of uh, of of guys who you know haven't coached haven't coached at all before coming here. And I think, uh, just a note on Friedel, too, I mean, I think he's got a pretty good staff. Not that Heaps didn't have a good staff. Friedel seems to have a pretty experienced coaching staff with him. Uh, and he has seen, showed some interest in, you know, the coaching, the tactical side of it during his playing years, too. Uh, so I think that was, I think for him, you know, it just could be a matter of time before the X's and O's. Uh, your point about the Ben Olsen quote about motivational versus X's and O's, uh, I thought of Jay Heaps immediately. Uh, that guy, you know, I don't think he lacks passion at all about, you know, this club. Um, but tactically, they're just, they seemed lost at times. Uh, how many times did he talk about, uh, you know, pressing high? And we saw nothing like the Revs did on this past Saturday. That was, you know, they, they put a game plan and they actually did it. I think we had heard from heaps about pressing high, and I don't think they ever pressed uh, like that against NYC on NYC and FC on Saturday. So um, to me, yeah, it's an X's and O's thing. I agree with you. Uh, you want someone that can kind of tactically break down. And, and the other thing is make adjustments when necessary. Yeah, and, and the the last question on the survey that I wanted to jump to that talks about the revolution here is, let me, let me make sure I phrase this correctly, that's what, where is the hardest place in MLS to play? Um, and when you think about that, places that jump to mind are places like Seattle and Atlanta and Portland that you know, sell out most of their games with an extremely passionate, loud fan base. Um, but Sixth on the list here comes in the, the revolution uh, in New England. And one of the, the quotes here was that I always think New England is tough because the crowds are pretty small. The field's not great. And it's just a weird vibe going into that game, um, which is, again, not the uh, the best way to have your home field described. Um, but it, it is interesting when you look at the revolution last year and how they had one of the best home records in the league, along with the worst road record. Um, that it does seem to be a difficult place to play. And, and, and Patrick Vieira even mentioned after the game that you know, New England had been a tough spot for them to play uh, where they'd struggled to get results. Uh, <laughs> Brian, what are, you, what are your thoughts on this comment? And it, it isn't something where, you know, where the league has evolved to um, and where we're seeing places like Atlanta, Portland, and Seattle that you know, are so loud and boisterous that you go into a football stadium like Gillette, who even when they get good crowds, um, seems to be drowned out by you know, you know, even being 18,000 people in a, in a 67,000-seat stadium. I mean, I kind of have to agree. It is kind of a weird vibe when you go to when you go see a game at Gillette. I mean, you know, I've, you know, we've talked to players who, you know, when when we ask them, you know, in the in the days leading up to a game, say at, you know, Sporting KC or at Portland, they all say that they all thrive under that kind of in that kind of environment. It gets them ready for the game. Um, I don't think I've ever heard a Revs player complain about having to go to like you know a Sporting Kansas City or or to go to Seattle and, and being ready for the game. They all seem like you know they all say it's a great crowd there. You know, it gets them fired up. So, um, so it is kind of an interesting kind of like uh, kind of it's it's an interesting dynamic in the sense that you're right. It's they, you know Gillette isn't isn't you know uh, Mercedes Benz Park uh, Field uh, you know down in Atlanta. It's not like Seattle. It is weird. <laughs> it, it is weird because you're playing this huge stadium where you're attracting you know where your top level crowd is you know around twenty five thousand twenty five thousand. It's not and that's only like a third of the stadium. 
Um, I think it. I think it works in the Revs' favor completely. Uh, if you have if you have guys who are coming in to Gillette on the other side of the field and saying, "Well, wait a minute, this is kind of like a weird vibe." You know, weird isn't comfortable. Weird is weird. Is, weird is a good thing. You want you kind of want your opponent to kind of feel weird about coming to your to your home stadium. So I think that's kind of a good thing. I think it's a good thing for the Revs if, if other players are saying that. Um, you know, more power to the Revs for ha- playing in a weird place because it obviously didn't hurt them last year when they posted their uh, their best ever home record. Yeah, it hasn't seemed to hurt them the last couple of years. They've they've done really well at home, uh, and you know, I guess you take home field advantage. Uh, for whatever you know it is whatever you know if it's a lack of crowd noise if it's just a huge stadium whatever it may be uh, the way locker room's kind of weird uh, whatever it is it's just you take home field advantage as you can get it uh, looking at that list too um, I wonder how much the field factors in I believe Atlanta is turf I believe Portland is turf and I believe Seattle is turf and they were uh, I think all in the top five so I, you wonder, uh, I could be I think those are all turf. Um, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I yeah, think no. those are, I mean, that. I wonder how much that factors in. If, if seven of the top, you know, eight or whatever it is, six of the top eight all have turf fields, how much is that? How much are people thinking of the surface? Yeah, that's a great point. I'd actually forgotten Atlanta was on that, that turf list, but you're right. Yep, all, all of those teams are turf and and when you see that 63 percent figure of players that don't want to go to teams or that would impact their decision to go to a team that plays on turf that's a that's a great point um and i think the revs have used that to advantage and i think the the pressing style of brad friedel not to go back to what we were talking about earlier um may even be suited to turf where you know the ball bounces aren't necessarily what you want and the ball can can play a little bit differently to to put somebody under high pressure especially you know a team like new york city fc that uh is so good in possession Generally, it can it can actually be a better, even more effective tactic potentially on turf. Um, and th- the last topic I wanted to get to tonight, and I can jump right down on the survey because it, it, it leads us there, is players are also asked, which big name designated player do you want in MLS as part of the survey? And of course, the top two answers were Lionel Messi at 24% and Cristiano Ronaldo at 21%. But then coming at it, number three... Uh, Zlatan Ibrahimovic at 18%, who, as we now know, just signed with the league shortly after the survey was released. And even perhaps more interestingly, Zlatan Ibrahimovic is not a big-name designated player to sign with the league because somehow the Galaxy managed to get him on a two-year, $3 million contract uh, in which they're using, I believe, targeted allocation money to buy him down to the point where you know Zlatan Ibrahimovic, one of the you know, best players in, in world soccer, albeit now at 36 years old and coming off injuries, is not even a designated player. Um, I, for one, am extremely excited to see Ibrahimovic in MLS, not only for his ability on the field, um, and I hope that he can stay healthy to, to show us that ability, but for his personality off the field. And we've already seen um, a bit of what that is. Uh, if you didn't see it in the Los Angeles Times the, the day he was announced as signing, he took out a full-page ad in the Los Angeles Times in which, in tiny print at the top, he said, Dear Los Angeles, you're welcome, and then signed at the bottom. So that gives you a taste of the, the type of guy and the type of ego uh, Latan Ibrahimovic is. Um, and, and Brian, I don't know about you, but I am for one of circling the date on the calendar uh, in July when, when the Galaxy come here to face the revolution so we can hopefully uh, interview Zlatan Ibrahimovic in person and, and get some of his uh, always entertaining quotes. Yes, absolutely. I have July 14th circled on my calendar right now. Um, I completely agree. I mean, the league, the league needs guys like him. I mean, especially a guy like him playing in a big market. Um, and it's great to see a, a guy like him in the league because you know he does attract attention. He is a big personality, and he and he plays well, and he backs it up more often than not. Um, I think he's a great he's a great addition to the league. 
Um, and you know, those of us, you know, the, you know, he may not move the needle the way he did when you know David Beckham came because David Beckham had such such appeal, you know, on and you know outside of the soccer world. But this is a guy who you know has probably almost not not quite as much not quite as much star power within the soccer world as as a David Beckham at the height of his career, but nevertheless still brings a, a significant amount of of that uh, of that uh, star power soccer star power to the league and you know uh, i i can't i like you said i honestly can't wait till he plays here in new england and that we get to be able to chat with him and just to see him play as well um you know hopefully he's the kind of player that can fit into their system into what ziggy schmidt is doing because if he does i think it'll be you know entertaining for everyone involved um so i can't wait to see how this uh how this all kind of plays out and uh hopefully hopefully it plays out for uh for the league to, to, to benefit because, you know, if a guy like him is, is, is playing well here, you know, obviously the profile of the league increases and, um, you know, I just think it's a win-win situation. I have a, I don't want to put you guys on the spot, but I think this is one of the biggest signings ever for MLS. Um, you know, it had been maybe, I feel like it's been like a two-year ordeal, the rumors of Zlatan coming here. I think ever since before he went to Man U, I think there was talk about him coming to MLS. Uh, and LA just seemed like the the destination he was going to get, uh, but not to you know put you guys on the spot. But who who's a bigger signing this in recent memory? Do you guys have anyone that comes to mind that's bigger than than Ibrahimovic? I think no one. I think for on the field performance, uh, you know, Giovinco has been absolutely phenomenal, but he doesn't have the pull of a guy like Zlatan Ibrahimovic. And, and to me, um, as Brian said, a guy like David Beckham, you know, perhaps a bit more star power and, and more well known. But Ibrahimovic is the type of guy that draws attention to himself, and I'm sure it can be grating to teammates and coaches. And we've seen that over the years. But for a league that you know can use this type of attention, he's a guy that the media has to cover. He. he his play on the field, and again, this is assuming he can stay healthy because the past year, you know, really for the first time in his career, he's had a lot of injury issues, and you hope that at 36, it's not going to continue. Um, but his play on the field, and then his ability off the field to, to you know, say outrageous things, um, bring so much attention to himself with with his quotes, with his ego, with everything that he does. Uh, even when you look at a guy like David Beckham for you know his his looks and for everything he did off the field that that drew his attention, Ibrahimovic is a guy that shines in the spotlight more than Beckham does. Beckham was a guy that you know wasn't necessarily a great quote and wasn't necessarily going to be doing things that would draw attention to him. Ibrahimovic certainly is. So to me, I, I think this is the biggest signing for the league uh, since Beckham and has the potential to be even you know more of a pull attention wise than a Beckham. Beckham just because of the personality that Ibrahimovic has that I don't think Beckham had. I will say uh, probably the closest signing to this would probably be when they when the Red Bulls brought in Thierry Henry. I mean, that that was a great signing. I mean, to this day, I still feel like Thierry Henry is probably probably the best player I've ever seen play while he was in MLS. I mean, he was just, to me, he was, he was Jordan-esque in the way that he played the game. Um, and to see him to see him play firsthand, to see him play, you know, live. It was just amazing. It was easily one of the most memorable things. One of my be- biggest memories of you know, pl- of covering this, covering the, uh, covering the sport here in the U.S. And it's just been, uh, you know, he's one of those players that I'm just, I'll never forget the way he played and the way, he was just a, two or three levels above everyone else around him. Um, the only other player I can maybe think of that maybe is in comparison to him would probably be maybe Davia. But Davia really didn't bring the same kind of star power. I mean, he's a star within the soccer realm, but I don't even think he's like a top 10 star, I guess, you know, at the time that he he came here. Um, but I guess, you know, the closest comparison would be probably, if not Beckham, I would probably say Thierry Henry. Yeah, Villa came to mind for me too, uh, just because I think, you know, skill-wise he's up there. 
Uh, a name that no one mentioned, and I think this is kind of telling us, Kaká. Uh, this guy was a balloon door winner, and he kind of just fizzled in MLS to me. I mean, he had some moments, um, but this is a guy, maybe it's because he went to Orlando and they were a relatively new club. Um, it just didn't seem like he was the big name that he was before. Uh, I think Ibrahimovic is huge. I think David Beckham, I think, will go down probably unless Ronaldo or Messi come. Uh, or in the future, you know, the next Messi or next Ronaldo come. I think Beckham goes down as the most important signing for this league because of how much of a boost he gave them. Uh, off the field, on the field, you name it. But Ibrahimovic gives them some more legitimacy here. Uh, more and more players are coming with more and more in their tank. We're not just seeing them come. Uh, who was it, the LA Galaxy guy that, you know, said it was a retirement league and then came here? I can't remember who it was. Um, but we've seen more and more players now come with, you know, plenty of years left underneath them to get here. So I think Ibrahim is huge signing for the league. Yeah, and I, th- I think you were talking about Ashley Cole, who I think called it something like going yes, to, going to yeah. live on the beach or, or something like that. Yeah, and then, and then he ended up coming, then came. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you 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 both made great points. Thierry Henry is certainly a, a good point of comparison as a you know a, a true star in world soccer that came over here and and still had something left in the tank and, and showed that. Um, and you know he was a phenomenal player uh, in his time here. You know Ryan, that's a great point of Kakao, World Player of the Year, but who just didn't didn't quite have the impact in MLS that um, you would have hoped from a, a guy of his caliber. There were flashes, but you know never really had that impact. Certainly not the level of impact that we saw from a Thierry Henry and now um, a David Villa. Uh, and, and to me, the and another guy to mention is certainly a Didier Drogba, who. Uh, certainly a, a world famous personality and a guy who's you know, p- partly credited with with ending a civil war in Ivory Coast, but with his time in Montreal, um, I don't think you know, we saw goals from him, but I don't think we necessarily saw the impact uh, off the field that we maybe expected him to have. Uh, to me, the, the thing again that just sets Ibrahimovic apart, Ibrahimovic apart, is just his ability to draw attention to himself, um, even when he's you know not necessarily on the field in a way that none of those guys who have you know maybe were quieter players. Uh, could so that that's something that I, I'm excited to see. He's the type of guy that says things that you know require you to put him on Sports Center after the match um, in a way that none of these other guys I think do. And Sean, you made a, a good point. I, I totally forgot about Drogba. And and you look at some of these names we mentioned. Via came up, but he's in New York. That helps. Yeah. Kaká Orlando. I think that hurt. Drogba in Montreal. I think that hurt the league as a whole. And I get you can't put every single star on L.A., Chicago, New York. Um, you don't want to send Zlatan to Minnesota. I'm sorry, you just don't want to do it. But it is interesting to see the guys you remember a little bit more playing for the bigger clubs. Um, you mentioned Giovinco earlier. Not a huge signing at the time. Arguably one of the best players this league has seen. Another one, Bradley Light- Wright Phillips. Not a huge signing. Maybe the best goal scorer of all time in this league. Um, interesting points based on markets and, and names that you kind of sign here. No, that that is an excellent point too. And a personality like Zlatan in Los Angeles just makes it all the more better. Um, and you wonder with all the stars out there who will be seeing him hanging out with. Uh, even even with a guy like Jermaine Jones, um, when we saw him move over to Los Angeles, even when he was with New England, flying out to Los Angeles quite frequently. Um, you know, he made a name for himself hanging out with celebrities and, and you know, the, the guys he got to know over there. Uh, Ibrahimovic, you just have to multiply that you know, many times over with, with his personality and, and star power. So I'm I'm personally really excited to see how this plays out. And it, again, my only concern is that he's 36 years old and coming off you know, significant knee injuries. 
Um, and he's been a guy that has been relatively healthy throughout his career. But when you're 36, and I think he's something like six foot five, which is, is again something that helps his, his presence and ability to draw attention. Um, you know, the, the knee injuries are more concerning. Um, but you look at a guy like like him coming in here, not even as a designated player on allocation money, and it's hard to see how this was a bad move in, in, in any sense. Even if you know injuries do take their toll on him, uh, something that you'd see people commenting when when he announced the signing was. Uh, MLS is in the past looked like a retirement league. Uh, what are you doing again, signing a guy like this? But and and you know, let me know if you guys agree with me. But to me, when you have a guy of the quality of Zlatan Ibrahimovic, if he wants to come over here at 36, you take him every single time, especially at that kind of salary. There are a few names out there, and I, I get the mentality that the league has been doing better and better at finding young designated players, and that's a, a great direction to go in. Uh, but there are a few names out there, and Ibrahimovic is one of them. That if you have an opportunity to sign that guy, even if he's 36 years old, you do it i think you take messi at 55 if you have to <laughs> yeah but just to just to continue that point yes there are certain names i think you absolutely do i think it's good for the league that you don't have to spend a dp spot on maybe the best guy this league has gotten um they're figuring out ways to make it possible for other teams not you know spending tam gam you name it uh to sign these players so for me um great signing good for la i know Fans in this area are never going to be happy for the Galaxy, but you know they go from I think was that their worst season ever last year? It seemed like it. I um, so. Go going from their worst season to the biggest signing, huge for them because this makes the LA Galaxy LAFC rivalry relevant, which I think makes LAFC more relevant. Uh, it's tough to be a um, expansion team, and but when you're given a natural rivalry, um, that helps. So to me, uh, great signing. Uh, take him. You take Messi. You take Ronaldo. You take Xavi. You take certain players at any age. Um, but yeah, great signing for LA Galaxy. Yeah. No. I again, as Brian pointed out, July th- July fourteenth. Mark it on the calendar. That's when hopefully he'll be healthy and come here to to Gillette for what should be an exciting game. Yeah, uh, one more quick note, just for Zlatan. We have to make sure we ask him uh, about the vibe, just to see if he gets a weird <laughs> vibe or not. Yes. Yes. We will. We will be sure to ask him that one. Yeah. The question will be asked. <laughs> um, and before we wrap things up, I just want to get your predictions for this upcoming game uh, against the Houston Dynamo. You mentioned the Galaxy being a Revs rival. The Dynamo are for for a similar reason of meeting them and losing that losing to them in, in lots of Cup finals. Uh, the Dynamo won one and one in sixth place um, in the Western Conference. Ryan, what do you think we're going to see uh, when Revs travel to Houston next weekend? Uh, you know, I, I for me, I want to see, see consistency out of the Revs. Um, Dynamo in a similar spot. Uh, as the Revs, I believe, 1-1-1. One, one, one. Um, the goal differential, I think, is a bit different. But uh, it's a familiar opponent. Uh, the style is going to be interesting. I think they play a little bit more quicker. Uh, NYC FC was a little bit more on the ground out of the back. So I don't know if we'll see the high press. Uh, but it'll be interesting for me. Um, on the road, if they can get a point, I think that would be fine. I think uh, I think similar to what uh, Ryan said about the press, uh, you know, I, I don't think they'll be doing as much pressing in this game as they did against NYCFC. Um, I see it be, becoming a similar game, um, or at least the way it should have been uh, at you know at at Philadelphia in the season opener, where you had kind of a, a team that you know Houston's obviously a little bit better than Philadelphia, but I think you're going to have a, di- a much different opponent than the than the uh, than the team that the refs played yesterday. Um, but I do think that the Reds still have some kinks to work out on defense. I'm going to say that it's going to be uh, one nothing Houston, um, and it'll be a late goal. 
It's kind of weird this Houston. You look at the results they have. They've tied DC United, who I don't think has a win, but they opened with a thrashing of Atlanta, who's a very talented team. So, um, you, I guess you don't know what you're going to expect when you, t- you take this road trip. Yeah, you make a great point. I think everyone was shocked when they saw that Houston beat Atlanta four nothing to open the season, um, because I know I, I and I think several other people thought Atlanta was. You know, think still probably think of Atlanta as one of the teams that's going to challenge for the the East this year, um, and then they follow that up with a, a loss to Vancouver, who um, I, I, I'm not too high on this season, despite their, them being two one on one this year, um, and then of course drawing at DC. So uh, again, you don't know what Houston you're going to get. They've had you know phenomenal results against Atlanta, and then two results that I think are they would consider disappointing. Obviously. Um, going into D.C. and playing in the, the Maryland soccer plex where this game was as D.C. waits to open their stadium. And I, there were comments, I believe, from DeMarcus Beasley complaining about um, that, that, ga- that game in that stadium. Um, and should also note that, that Houston was off this weekend, so they're you know, having extra rest going into this game. But um, it, it's going to be interesting. I think Houston's a, a very different team than New York City FC. Um, if if Frito goes in on the road and, and does high press against Houston, that would that would surprise me. So I think you have to approach this game a, a bit different and you know look to possess the ball a bit more than they against New York City FC. Um, I'm actually going to go ahead and predict a one-one draw in this in this game, but I, I, I could see it going one of several ways. If the Houston team that that showed up against Atlanta shows up against the Revolution, it could be a, a very difficult match. Um, otherwise, I, I think. It, you know, otherwise, I think the Revs have an opportunity here if they can build some consistency and build from this this draw against New York City FC to come out of here with a point and what's always a difficult place to play. Uh, I did want to wrap up here, and of course, you should follow Revolution Recap at Revolution Recap on Twitter. Uh, Brian, do you want to give your Twitter handle? Yep, it's uh, at Brian O'Connell twenty one. And Ryan, you want to give yours? At R underscore Lanigan. Got plenty of followers. Come join the fun. You can follow me at Sean L. Donahue. Thanks again, Brian and Ryan, for, for joining us today. Um, and thanks to all of our listeners. And again, you can find us now on the Google Play Store as well as Apple iTunes and just about every other podcast directory out there. And if you don't see us in a podcast directory that you're looking for us on or a podcast app, let us know and we'll do our best to get in there. So thanks again for joining us for another show. We'll be back next week.